This morning we're going to begin a new preaching series because I thought that the holiday weekend was a perfect time to start something new. Um, the last fall we spent months on studying the life of Peter, looking at lots of uh, stories of Peter, and that was really a way of learning to look at Jesus as one of his disciples. Um, and I just thought as we go into this new year, this would be a good time for us to pick up one of the letters that Peter wrote later in his life. And the truth is, is that there's actually not much that we know about Peter. Um, shortly after uh, Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, we see that Peter was really central to the expansion of the church in Jerusalem and outward from there. Uh, he features prominently in several stories all the way up to about Acts 15 uh, in the Jerusalem Council. And then in the biblical accounts, it seems kind of like he just dropped off the radar. Um, and in fact, much of what we know about Peter later in life, we see in some of the letters that Paul wrote. So we know that he remained in Jerusalem as one of the um, leaders in the church there for some time. He also appears in Galatia, where he had a confrontation with Paul. If you haven't read about that, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, that's always entertaining, right? Uh, he also seems to appear in Corinth, the city of Corinth, where Paul sent a letter to 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about a group of people that followed the Cephas party, those who follow Peter. Cephas means rock, and uh, it was just one of the nicknames Jesus gave him. So that it could mean that Peter was there doing, in that city, doing ministry for some time. And it appears that he's writing this letter from the city of Rome. So later in this letter, he'll reference writing from Babylon. That is almost assuredly a uh, reference to the city of Rome. So when we look at this, what we're seeing is that Peter is writing a letter later in his life as one of the early fathers of the early church and as someone who was really fundamental to the church's missionary movement in the first century. But perhaps as important as where Peter is writing from is simply who Peter is writing to. We're going to see in this text He's going to name several areas or regions that are all right next to each other. They're kind of contiguous. And uh, they're all found in modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. And to say that this population of people was diverse is really putting it lightly. Uh, they are all coming from different places. There were several different ethnicities that would have been addressed there. Uh, different customs, different backgrounds. Many of the people reading Peter's letter for the first time uh, would have grown up learning a different language even. And so what you see here is just this audience that's full of, I called it a potpourri. I've never used that word, not in years, I don't think. But it really is. It's a potpourri of experience and values that would describe the people that he's writing to. And, uh, and despite all these differences, what we see is that they all have one crucial thing in common. That they all bear the same faith and the same Jesus. And what Peter will do in this passage, right at the beginning of this letter, is describe the shared hope that they have amidst sorrow. And so that's what we're talking about this morning, is hope amidst sorrow. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, and I'll read verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we uh, kneel before you in need of your grace, and we come before you now grateful for the ways that you extended to us and that you make us your own people. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to us now as your people, that you would give us your word and that you would apply it to our hearts, do surgery on us now. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a word of hope and give us a word of peace and help me, your servant, to love these people, your people, these friends well, and to honor you with the things that I'll say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier in the worship booklet, you may or may not have noticed it, um, I put a quote from a poem by William Blake in there. Um, It's called Auguries, I don't know how to pronounce this word, Auguries of Innocence. In fact, I don't even know what the word auguries means, so if one of you do, please come up and tell me later. But that's the title of the poem, and uh, it's a poem that really caught my eye this week. I've returned to it throughout the week over and over and over again. Let me read you a few more lines of that poem right now. Man was made for joy and woe, and when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. So I've been reading that all week, as I told you, and... uh, Uh, I think I know why it caught my eye. And it's just a fascination with how someone could use words so beautiful to describe something that feels so hard for us. That two things, joy and woe, 
which seem diametrically opposed to each other, are often found in our life right alongside each other. Like some kind of awkward dance partners. Hardly ever do we see joy without woe. And hardly ever do we see woe without joy. And for many of us, the tension there is almost unbearable. And it invites all kinds of questions, good questions. Like why? Why does life look like that? And am I the only one that's seeing this or feeling this way? How do I navigate the challenges that this kind of tension presents to me? And perhaps the most important question of all is, is there going to be a time when one of those, joy or woe, wins out? It's important that when we look at this text, we realize that Peter is writing to people both in their joy and in their sorrow. And he's teaching them, just like he's teaching you and me right now, that there is a time when one of them wins out. And that hope, even in the midst of sorrow, is fundamental for the Christian. How does he go about that? I'm going to name three things that Peter does in this passage. There are many, but I'm going to name three and then work through them with you. The first I want to say is that he is very honest with us about our present. He's honest about our present. And he applies hope to our experience. And then finally, he gives us reasons we can have confidence in who we, can, who we trust. Honesty, hope, confidence. That's what we're talking about this morning. First, honesty. What I wanted to say is that Peter is honest with us about who we are and about what we experience. First, who we are. When you look at the introduction here, those first two verses are the introduction to this letter. They'll start, you know, like most ancient letters, they'll start, it'll lead with who is writing the letter, and then it'll immediately followed by that, it will be uh, the audience of the letter. And so it's interesting to me when you look at that, what you see is that Peter says very little about himself and a lot about who he is writing to. And so you see Peter, he names himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then it's like he goes on a rant about, about who these people are. And one of the things he says to them, I just find this very honest, he calls them those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now that's a profound thing to call somebody. It, somebody needs to write a book about what it means to be the elect exiles of the dispersion. In fact, if somebody has, please let me know. I will read that book. Because what Peter is saying, he is evoking old language about the identity of God's people as the elect exiles of the dispersion. Centuries before, when the southern kingdom of Israel fell, uh, foreign invaders came in and the Israelites were scattered across the ancient Near East. They were dispersed. The word for that is diaspora. And so even though they retained their identity as God's elect people, people God had chosen them, they were exiles because they were far from home. And that was a a kind of fundamental way uh, that they understood themselves as elect exiles of the dispersion. So when Peter, a Jew, calls a bunch of Gentile Christians this, what he's saying to them is you are the new Israel. That you are God's people set apart by him and yet far away from your homeland. And what this means for you and me is I want you to hear this. 
that if you belong to God by faith in Jesus Christ, you are a part of his elect people. He has chosen you. You are his elect. Your identity is constructed in his sovereign disposition toward you and nowhere else. And yet, you and I are also living out our lives in a place that we don't really belong to. You and I are very far from our homeland. We are elect exiles. What does it mean that we're exiles? Matt's not here, so I can embarrass him a little bit. Um, I had a conversation with him about this week, and he point, pointed me toward a book that he's reading with some of you, some guys here. He's reading Run, Run With Horses, a book written by Eugene Peterson. I haven't read it, but what he pointed me to his favorite chapter, which was essentially about what it means that God's people were living in exiles. And essentially, it's a love letter written to those who, who really feel their exile state. And so here, And here's what he had to say. He said... Exile is nothing less than traumatic and terrifying. Our sense of who we are is very much determined by the place we are in. You hear that identity language? And the people we are with. And when that changes violently and abruptly, who are we? Who are we anymore? What's he doing? He's doing exactly what Peter is doing in this passage. He is connecting who we are, our identity, with where we are in a state of exile. But what Peter is making sure to say is that no matter how profound our exile might feel, you are always God's chosen people. You are elect exiles. And that's one of the fundamental ways that we understand ourselves. And this is really driven home in his honesty about what our experience looks like. Look forward at verse 6. He says, Though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved. You have been grieved by various trials. There is a weird tendency in Christianity. I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it. It looks different in different places. Um, and, uh, but there is a weird tendency to look at somebody who confesses the Christian faith, see them suffering, or in trial of some kind, and think, that doesn't line up with what I believe. I got to tell you, there's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. In fact, the Bible is very honest with us that the way of Jesus is filled with trials, is filled with suffering, is filled with all kinds of ways that expose our weaknesses. That's the path, that's the very path our Savior walked. And we follow him. But what makes it intolerable to us is if we think there's no purpose behind it. Like if there's no meaning. Uh, It's the way, and, and so if we think that there's no purpose behind our suffering, then we can thank Peter for being honest with us and naming the ways that we're suffering. He sees it, but it can be very hard to have any hope, right? How can we have hope in what we experience? A sobering moment this was really sobering for me in ministry. This was years ago, um, before I was ever in Birmingham. Uh, I uh, met with a guy who, um, who uh, was in just a really tough place. He had been in my ministry for years. He was a high school senior. I had known him. We had hung together. I had taught him for a long time, and uh, he was in a hard place. He had gotten in some trouble at school. He was in a tough place with his family, 
Uh, he was thinking about his future. I mean, all these things were on the table, and we're unpacking them together. And, uh, and at some point, he said to me that he was convinced that God is someone who plays games with his people. That he's like a puppet master. He thought that God was somebody that dangles us in and out of joy and sorrow as he wills. And that there was no meaning behind it. And I got to tell you, I felt very convicted that at some point we need to learn about what it looks like to talk about what God is up to when we're suffering. And I also wondered how many other people feel that way. In this passage, when Peter talks about our trials and our suffering, he applies hope to us in all kinds of different ways. And he starts by telling us that there is purpose that God is up to in the midst of our suffering. Look at verse 6. I'll read 6 into 7. He says, you have been grieved by various trials so that, that's a causal statement, right? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We know that God cares about his suffering people. Psalm 56 says that God catches our tears and keeps them in a bottle. But one of the things that we're also hearing here is that they're necessary to produce something beautiful in us. That just as gold is refined as it passes through a furnace, our faith in Jesus is purified in trial. Our faith, more precious than gold, is purified in trial. It's when we're under stress that we realize our need for God. And it's when things are really difficult for us and that we don't understand what the way forward looks like, that, we're, that our eyes are most open to being able to see the way that God is at work in profound and meaningful ways. But listen, Peter's not done here. He's not just telling us that God has sovereign purposes in mind as he, as he is with us in our suffering. He also relieves some of our deepest fears. How does he do that? What is the thing we fear the most when we suffer? That there's no end to it. That it's interminable. And so Peter doesn't just say, you are suffering for a little while. He says that. But, when you, uh, but he tells us that right after he describes something permanent and unassailably true about who we are. He tells us that because of Jesus Christ, you and I, we are born again to a living hope that will never die through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Listen to how he describes this inheritance. He says that we couldn't ruin this inheritance even if we tried. It is imperishable. It is unfading. It is undefiled. And it is kept In heaven for you, guarded by Christ's power, by God's power. The same power that holds you in faith in Christ is right now at work protecting the inheritance that you have in Christ. And you may ask, and it would be a good question, and people have asked this question for a long time. What is our inheritance going to look like? And Peter doesn't tell us. But listen, I can tell you this, that that day, that's going to be a good day. That day 
is going to be the day when you see with your eyes what you believe to be true in your heart right now. That's the day when you see joy outlast sorrow. That one of these things has an endpoint, and the other runs on and never ends. That in the end for the Christian, joy wins. One of my favorite scholars, I met him once, he, he, uh, shortly before he died, he was an old and godly man, but one of my favorite scholars, Ed Clowney, says this, the sequence of our lives follows the sequence of Christ's life. Sufferings, he suffered first, then he entered into his glory, and so must we. Listen, the people who received this letter would need to hear this. Peter... Peter is most likely writing this letter in Rome right at the beginning of Nero's reign. And even though it's unlikely that the full calamity of Nero's reign is being felt by Christians across the empire, you can know that it's coming. And even despite that that hasn't happened yet, they're certainly suffering in difficult ways simply because of the faith that they have, that that's their state. That's why they needed to hear this. But my question for you is, where do you need to hear this? None of this is valuable for us if it remains in the abstract. What are the places in your life where you are suffering where you need to hear this? These are incredible claims. And unless you have something to press them up on, they, they, they won't mean much to you. Think about these claims. I see four. First, that your suffering's not in vain. There's a purpose behind it. That it won't last forever. That your faith is of immense value. And that our inheritance as God's people is even more stable. It's even more stable and sure as this floor I'm standing on right here. Where are the places in your life where you need to hear this? If you can indulge me... Let me ask you to do this, this afternoon or tomorrow, but don't wait long. But go home and take some time and just ask the question, where, where are the places in my life where I need to hear these are true and I need to apply these claims to that my suffering is not in vain? Where am I suffering right now? We can live our lives ignoring the places we hurt. Where am I suffering right now? Where am I afraid? Or maybe where, where are my neighbors suffering and my friends suffering and where are they afraid? Write them down. They can be for you, yourself, whatever. I don't know if you've got a journal or you don't, but write them down and then pray these claims over them. Would you do that? Let me ask you to do that. You see, the things that we need in this life it's not more competency. We don't need more problem solving. What we need is the ability to trust Jesus with the things that matter most in our hearts. And it seems to me that Peter is hard at work in this passage trying to build our confidence in who we trust. If you've been around here for a while, I'm going to ask you to forgive me um, because I'm about to give you another uh, whitewater paddling illustration. <laughs> um, I, I can't get away from it. it I, I, hey, I give you far less than I think of, okay? 
Um, but there's so many ways to me, like a river as a metaphor for life makes sense. And so uh, in, in, when I paddle rivers, hardly ever do, I, uh, do you paddle something that's just continuously turbulent, like you're in white water from the moment you put in until the moment you take out. Often what it looks like is that there are periods of calm water that are really easy, and then suddenly, whether you see it or not, you're in a rapid. And maybe you knew what you were getting into, and maybe you didn't. But for a while, you can feel like, okay, uh, this is wonderful. I'm just enjoying the landscape and the people that I'm with. And then suddenly, you're in the middle of something that's more powerful than you are. And it can feel scary. And when you're a rookie in this game, one of the challenges is teaching you to be able to lift your eyes and see the whole river. Because our tendency when we're in trouble is to only see what's right in front of us, to deal with that. But the trick is to lift your eyes to be able to see the whole river, to see where the eddies are, to see where the safe spots are, to see where your friends are, to see where help is if you need it. Like, you got to be able to see the whole thing. And when you can, it's much easier. And what I'm seeing Peter do is he's teaching us to lift our eyes and see the whole river. Because it's telling to me that he begins this passage before he talks about us and our suffering, and he ends this passage by talking about things that have already been done for us in the past. Look at verse 2. It says, You were chosen by God according to his foreknowledge. You know what that means? That means that before you were even born, God sets you aside as his own. Ephesians 1 tells us that before the creation of the world, God chose you for himself. He looked at you and he said you were his. In every moment that has passed, from that moment until this moment right now, he has been at work for your salvation. In verse 10, Peter talks about prophets, the Old Testament prophets, who spoke to Israel about someone who was going to come who was going to suffer and die, and that the glory of God's people, the future glory of God's people, were directly linked to the sufferings of this Christ that was coming, and they wanted to know more. The the passage says they inquired carefully about this. They wanted to know what it was going to look like, or who it was, or when this was going to happen. And in verse 12, this blows my mind. It says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves... But you, people they had never met, there is a lot going on that we've never seen. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you rejoice with an inexpressible joy. And even though the prophets never saw Jesus, they spoke about him. And even though the prophets never met you, they were serving you centuries ago. Every piece of the timeline has been architected for your salvation, your future union with Jesus, for your inexpressible joy that will last forever. That is the business that God is about right now and every moment. From now until Jesus is revealed to us at the last time, we have to lift our eyes and we have to see the whole landscape of what Jesus is doing. The life, and nowhere is this more clear than when he sent Jesus for you. The life, death, 
and resurrection and all the promises that come with it are the greatest comfort to us in our suffering. Listen, I know and you know what it's like to feel alone. I know and you know what it's like to despair that it might ever get better. We know that feeling. It's a terrible feeling. And the greatest comfort to you and to me this morning is a suffering Jesus on the cross. He was not held there by the nails in his feet and his hands. You know what held him there? His deep love for you. His ongoing, unrelenting, and unflinching commitment for you. Because he was there thinking of you. And he said to himself, that one's worth it to me. She's, she's worth it to me. He's worth it to me. Let me close this way. Some of you have been to France. I have not. If any of you go to France, let me ask you to do something for me. Go to southern France. Into the Savin Mountains. And find the Museum of the Desert. I typed this up as the Museum of the Desert. I'm sure there is a Museum of the Desert in France. Uh, but this is the Museum of the Desert. And it's a museum that remembers the sufferings of the Huguenot martyrs. Uh, in 1685, Louis XIV made Protestant public worship a crime. And, uh, and there were men who were caught in a secret worship service in the fields. And uh, they were sent to the galleys. They were, um, they were chained to a rowing bench where they would row with these huge oars until they died. And if you go to that museum today, what you're going to find is a, is a replica of one of those huge oars hanging in the museum. And underneath that oar, you're going to find a model of the galley. And beside it are inscribed the words of a Christian galley slave. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. No matter what his life looked like, he knew that because of Jesus, there was coming a time when joy and sorrow part ways forever. That was his prayer. And may that be our prayer too. Let me pray. Spirit, there, it's one thing to say these things are true and to hear these things are true but it's an entirely other thing to trust that these things are true. And we know that that's the work that you're about. And so I pray that you would be about that work right now, convincing our spirits of the truth of these things. That your grace doesn't flinch. That you have been hard at work in many more days than this one, drawing us to yourself. And that there will come a time when sorrow comes to an end and joy is everlasting. Teach us that that is true. In Jesus' name, amen.